Good morning. Let's see. You still hear me? Oh, that is great. It works. Uh, just a couple of announcements, actually, before we get started here. Uh, uh, a reminder that this Wednesday, our good friend Aaron Brown will be teaching on poetry, Christianity and poetry. And uh, I've had the great delight of hearing him talk about and read actual poetry every Thursday night at our small group, and it is this close to heaven. So I encourage you all to come and uh, hear his teaching on that. Uh, those Christianity and series are, are, are great events to be a part of. Uh, and also, uh, Keith rightly noted that, uh, yeah, we do have a lot of our members um, uh, in hospice right now with surgery. Uh, but one announcement, Marianne Baker actually requested, please, no meals. So if you're planning to prepare a meal for Mary Ann Baker, don't. But she does covet your prayers and maybe a phone call here and there. Well, over the past couple of weeks, we've been exploring Paul's command to honor, to show honor throughout the church. The church is to honor its true widows. Congregations are to honor its preaching elders. And slaves, as we looked at last week, to honor their masters. And what's been interesting, I don't know if you've noticed this or not, but but in each case, the command to give honor is somehow connected with finances. The widows are to be honored as they're enrolled to serve and work within the church, and as the church financially supports these widows. Elders who teach and preach are to be honored by being sustained financially, by the church. If you remember, a, a pastor is likened to an ox who works the field, but is likewise sustained by that same field. And then slaves, who no doubt are to work hard in order to bring financial benefit to their masters, are nonetheless called on by Paul to honor their masters. And so you see that this theme of honor that we've been looking at is intimately connected with money. But just so you haven't forgotten, I want you to look back at what Paul says about leaders in the church and money, what their attitude toward money ought to be. Look back in your Bibles at chapter 3, verse 3. The elders of the church, those who lead and shepherd the flock well, are to be what? He says, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, and not a lover of money. Look just a couple verses down at verse 8. Deacons. It says, Deacons likewise must be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. You see? Though there is instruction on the church to honor and support its leaders, Paul is also clear that good leaders don't love money. They don't desire dishonest gain. They're not in it for the money. And as we've been looking at this letter of 1 Timothy and the detailed instruction that Paul has given on what church should be and and how the church should be organized and structured, I hope you've noticed the very practical application of his writing. This is not some ivory tower, ephemeral or esoteric teaching. It's gritty. It's in your face. The rubber hits the road kind of theology. In fact, all of biblical theology is like that. And and 1 Timothy here is no different. And Paul is telling us, look, here in the church, 
money and finances, it matters. You've got to think about it. Within this fallen world, I think we'd all agree money is powerful. And it's one of those things that the church needs to think rightly about. We need to have a good theology on money within the church. And we need to be extra careful in how the church deals with money. Though we are concerned with spiritual things, and and the gospel is our primary focus, the material matters of this world don't just all of a sudden fall to the wayside. In fact, Paul is saying here that if we rightly handle the spiritual truths of the gospel, well, then we have to rightly handle the material matters of this world as well. This morning's text throws us right into the heart of this money matter. Let's read it quickly and pray. First Timothy chapter 6, and I'm going to be reading from verses, the end of verse 2 all the way down to verse 10. First Timothy 6, the end of verse 2 to verse 10. Paul says, teach and urge these things. If anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the, the sound words or, or the healthy words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness, he is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words which produce envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, and constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth, imagining that godliness is a means of gain. Now, there is great gain in godliness with contentment. For we brought nothing into the world and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for your revealed word. Lord, it is sharp as a sword and pierces our fallen hearts. And Lord, we ask that you would, by your word and by your spirit, make us to understand your will for us this morning as a church in regards to money. Help us, Lord, to find true and godly contentment in Christ so that we might live rightly and honorably before you in this world. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. As you see, what I've just read, Paul has not left the issue of money alone. It's still something he needs to give instruction on. But this time, he speaks elaborately on the very real danger that churches face when money, the power of money, goes unchecked. This is really where the spiritual and the material collide. At the heart of this text is the connection between those who teach a spiritual false gospel and their love of money versus those who teach the spiritually true gospel and their contentment in any situation. Paul is bringing out here, though, the big guns as he takes special aim, I think, at those wolves in sheep's clothing who have gained a following under the guise of godliness all in order to gain money and riches. 
It seems to me that Paul breaks up his instruction here really into two categories. First is his description of these wolves, those who have an ungodly discontent. That is, what are the marks of these false teachers within the church, and, and what's the result of their teaching within the church? And then secondly, Paul will give instruction on what true godly contentment is. Well, first, Paul tells Timothy at the end of verse 2, teach and urge these things. That is, everything I've been teaching you about in this letter, teach that. Urge the people to take that seriously. Because a failure to do so will lead the church to end up, as Paul says down in verse 9, plunging the people into ruin and into destruction. And he says in verse 3, look, people are going to come and they're going to teach. There's going to be some, some exciting people that might gain your ear. They may be great speakers. They may be charismatic people in the pulpit. They may actually sell a ton of books and have their sermons on the radio and, and spots on the TV. And everybody loves them. But watch out that they don't teach a different doctrine. A different doctrine that goes against or doesn't agree with the sound words, the the healthy words, the life-giving words of our Lord Jesus Christ. Maybe you've heard it said, maybe you've said this yourself, oh, doctrine divides. Uh, Churches that focus on doctrine and theology, it's divisive. Just stay away from that. That's nonsense. What Paul is going to tell us here is that it's not doctrine that divides. It's bad doctrine that divides. It's false and bad teachers with bad doctrine that divides. You know, everyone has a doctrine. Everyone has a theology about God and the Bible. You may not be aware of it. You may not think much about your doctrine all that much. But the truth is, whatever you believe about God, about the church, about the Bible, about this world, about mankind, that's your doctrine. The plain truth of the matter is that some people have better and more responsible doctrines than others. Good doctrines and theology that has been worked out well to fit with what the scriptures teach. Paul is saying here, make sure that that good doctrine is taught within the church. Teach and urge these things. But, if someone does come with a different doctrine, a doctrine that's different from what you see in Scripture, Paul says, let me tell you what to look for and where that false doctrine is really coming from. Verses 4 through 5, Paul is going to lay out the different characteristics of a false teacher. And he's laying them out in a sort of way where he begins on the surface and then gradually digs deeper to look at the heart of their motivation like layers on the side of a hill. Of course, the first sign is what he's already said in verse 3, that they teach things contrary to good doctrine, contrary to what we see in the Bible. But then he goes deeper. Look at the beginning of verse 4. The next layer, the next mark of someone who is a false teacher is that he is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. Not only is their theology unbiblical, but it's marked by self and selfishness, conceit and pride. And thus he's conceited and knows nothing. He's not aware of the full scope of the word of God because his time 
and his attention is actually spent focusing on himself. He doesn't preach through the tough passages of Scripture, not only because he doesn't know how to, but because his teaching, which is filled with great stories and jokes and and gets the crowd laughing and gets the church full, he does that because that actually feeds his ego. I'm not saying that stories and jokes are wrong and sinful. The mark of a false teacher is that all he does is that, to get the pews filled up. This is opposite of what we see the prophet Isaiah do, who preached a message faithfully for years that nobody listened to. This is opposite to what John the Baptist did, who didn't shy away from calling out the sins of the Pharisees, oh, you brood of vipers, and the sins of Herod, which actually got him beheaded. This is opposite to the teaching of Jesus, which when he really started to lay out the truth and the meat and the fangs and claws of the gospel, the crowds left him. And then the crowds actually went on to cheer, crucify him, crucify him. You see, false teachers tickle the ears of crowds. False teachers get you motivated to live your best life now. All because false teachers love themselves and thus, as Paul points out, are conceited and ignorant. And don't miss the connection here. Paul's going to show us that the root of all this, where this stems from, at the deepest level of a false teacher, is actually his love for money. And so the connection is this. When, when you get a little money in your pocket, and you love it, and you crave it, your mentality changes. And when you see that you can bring in more by the shallow and ignorant teaching of a false gospel, well, then you do that. The pulpit ceases to be a place where the truth of God's word is delivered, thus saith the Lord, and becomes instead a place where lies divest you of your money. The next level down of what motivates and marks out a false teacher is seen in the rest of verse 4. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words which produce envy, dissension, slander, evil, and evil suspicions. You see, not only are false teachers conceited and shallow, but they're also argumentative. They have an unhealthy craving for controversy. And you see the connection here between verse 4 and verse 3, right? If they don't agree with the healthy, sound doctrine of Scripture, they therefore have this unhealthy craving for stirring up wrong doctrine and distracting the church with arguments over petty words. John Stodd, a lifelong pastor himself in London, notes that, quote, petty quibbles and quarrels of this kind lead to a complete breakdown in human relationships. And you can see this in the results listed here. There's envy, which is the resentment of other people's gifts. Oh, he gets all the attention. There's no trust now between those brothers. Next comes dissension which gives the picture of people trying to out-compete and and outshine others around us in the church, like crabs in the bottom of a bucket trying to get on top. After that, Paul says, comes slander, using our words not to encourage and lift up our brothers and sisters in love, but to speak poorly about them behind their backs. And this, of course, produces what Paul says next, evil suspicions. We forget that the church is a fellowship of brothers and sisters, a family of God built on trust, charity, and love. And instead, we now cast an eye of evil suspicion towards everyone around us. What's the result of all this? Verse 5. 
there's now a constant friction. I love that word, friction among people who are depraved in the mind, precisely because they are deprived of the truth. You see that? When false teachers, teachers who, who have money as their God, start holding sway within the family of God, ugliness ensues. There's constant friction now, depravity, all because there is a deprivation of the truth and the gospel isn't being preached well. And you see the deepest level there at the end of verse 5. What's at the heart of the matter? What's ultimately motivating these guys? Well, as we've seen, they are imagining that godliness is a means of gain. What do depraved minds dream of? Money. What do false teachers look like? Someone who uses godliness as a means to get rich. Can we just stop here and let off maybe a little bit of steam in our culture? Because by and large, the largest and and, and fastest growing religion around the world right now is that depraved and demonic cult known as the prosperity gospel. If I could just quote John Piper ever so briefly because I think he nails it. He says, I don't know what you feel about the prosperity gospel, the health, wealth, and prosperity gospel, but I'll tell you what I feel about it. Hatred. It's not the gospel. And it's being exported from this country all over the world, selling a bill of goods to the poorest of the poor. Believe this message, and everything will go well for you. You'll have gold rings on your fingers, nice coats on your back. And here's the reason it's so horrible. When was the last time anybody ever said, Jesus is all satisfying to me because you drove a BMW? Never. They'll say, did Jesus give you that? Well, I'll take Jesus. That's idolatry. That's not the gospel. That's elevating gifts above the giver, the creation above our blessed creator. Friends, Paul is taking aim here not only at the false teachers in his day, but those same false teachers in our day who masquerade as pastors, but only to get rich. And they're enticing others with their same lusts. And I'll tell you where you can find them. They're usually on TV. If you've ever turned on TBN, that's where you'll find them. And they're usually asking you to do things like sow seeds of prosperity, which just means send me your money. They hide behind a veneer of false spirituality, usually giving themselves conceited titles, like Paul says, like prophet so-and-so or apostle so-and-so. Just like Paul mentions here, They have an entire theology, a wrong theology, but a theology nonetheless to support their case. It's called word of faith theology, a teaching which says that if we're really spiritual and godly, God will richly supply us. And and the way we get that rich blessing is by speaking our words into existence. Are you poor? Well, if you're a faithful man or a woman of God, then, then you should be able to speak your blessing into existence. You wake up and say, I'm going to be blessed today. I'm going to make money today. In other words, you name it and claim it. People often talk about, I speak blessing into your life. And then there's the usual vocal response, I receive that blessing. Friends, that's word of faith theology, which is developed to uphold and name it and claim it religion, which came out of the prosperity gospel. Does everyone who believe uh, in word of faith do so out of a love for money? No. 
but they've unwittingly adopted a theology which was meant to support the claims of greedy prosperity ministers. None of it has any grounding at all in Scripture. It's a wrong theology because it turns the sovereign God over all existence into a mere genie. It makes our words to be like God's words. And the Bible tells us it's only God who can speak anything into existence. God is never bound by what we do or do not say. He's bound by the freedom of his own sovereign will alone. Friends, it's his world and we're just living in it. Listen here to how the Bible speaks about our status in the world. 1 Samuel 2.7 It is the Lord who makes poor and some he makes rich. He brings low and he exalts. Proverbs 22, verse 2. The rich and the poor meet together, and it is the Lord who is the maker of them all. Indeed, right here in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 17, which we'll see next week. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. It is God and his sovereignty which places us where we are. You see, in the end, money, wealth, riches, they're not bad. These are not bad things in and of themselves. Paul acknowledges that here in 1 Timothy, and we'll see that again next week. God does bless some with the capacity to be wealthier than others, and that's okay according to God's wisdom and goodness. The evil is not money itself, as many people have wrongly thought. Now look what Paul says in verses 9 and 10. Those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It's not riches that are evil. It's the desire and the craving and the love to be rich. It's the love of money that produces all kinds of evil. So what's the end game if money is the goal of a preacher, or of the church. Well, Paul says in verse 9 that you'll fall into temptation and that there will be more snares to trip you up than before. It'll get you out of the game, take you away from God, and you'll begin to despise the gospel. How? Well, you'll fall into many senseless and harmful desires, Paul says. Look at that in verse 9. A love of money actually changes the way you think and feel. It has a real effect upon the way you see life. If you don't believe me, let's do a thought experiment. Just imagine how your day might change and the temptations that would arise if I stuff a cool $500, $700, $900 cash in your pocket and send you on your way. Maybe some new desires, desires that weren't there a minute ago, would now begin to arise in your thoughts. What would you do with that money in your pocket? And again, it's not the money. It's our own hearts. You see, money, temptations, any kind of outward occurrences, those put nothing into a man. They only draw out what was already in a person's heart. And once that craving is drawn out and fed and acted on, well, Paul tells us in verse 10, it's through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. Isn't that a striking image? Piercing themselves with many pangs. Not only do they leave the faith, but their craving for money actually kills them. It strangles and kills the soul. 
Have you ever seen how the Eskimo people would catch and kill wolves? They would take the blood of some animal, freeze it into a block of ice, putting that frozen blood on and around a knife, and then all they would do is just leave it out in the open. The wolf who craves blood comes and licks the frozen block of blood, licking, licking in a frenzy of satisfying its craving for blood, so much so that it's unaware that it's already licked through the frozen blood, and it's cut its own tongue on the knife, hidden inside. And it's now actually licking its own blood, cutting himself over and over, piercing itself with many pangs. Do you see? An ungodly discontentment, a discontentment, I warn you, that lies within each and every one of us, myself included. This discontentment destroys lives. It plunges people into ruin. And it's a craving which leads many straight into hell. Well, if this is the description and characteristic and trajectory of false teaching, a false teaching which ultimately is motivated by a love of money, then what can we do as a church to make sure that doesn't happen to us? Look at verses 6 through 8. But godliness with contentment is great gain, for we brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing with these, we will be content. Here Paul gives us the answer. And it's that rare jewel of godly contentment. And look at Paul's brilliant way of undermining the false teachers. He doesn't deny there that there is real gain with godliness. In fact, he affirms it. Godliness is gain. It's great gain, in fact. Provided that your godliness is a contented godliness. That there is contentment in it. Paul's use of the word contentment here was a word which described self-sufficiency. Regardless and independent of any circumstances around you. It's a contentment not at all dependent on external motivations. Jeremiah Burroughs, the Puritan pastor, gives, I think, the best definition of godly contentment I've ever seen. He says this, Christian contentment is that sweet, inward, quiet gracious frame of spirit which freely submits to and delights in God's wise and fatherly disposal in every situation. This matches very closely with what Paul said of himself in Philippians chapter 4 where he says, quote, I'm not speaking of being in need. Paul says, I have learned in whatever situation I am in to be content. I know how to be brought low and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstances, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. This passage has always struck me, because twice Paul says that he had to learn the secret of being content. In other words, it isn't something that we can just do automatically in and of ourselves. As sinners, as fallen human beings, our proclivity, our natural bent is to be discontent, To want more and more and more. If you don't believe me, just look at any two-year-old here. Give them something, and they want more. And they want more. And as soon as they turn three, Mommy, Daddy, can I have that? Can I have that? Here, Paul, the godly apostle himself, says that even he had to learn contentment. How did he learn it? Well, firstly, in our passage in verse 7, he gives us an essential insight. 
We brought nothing into the world, and we can take nothing out, anything out of the world. This is exactly what Job himself said when considering our time in this fallen world of suffering. Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I shall return. We all come into this world and leave this world in exactly the same way. And so our life on earth is nothing more than a brief pilgrimage between two moments of nakedness and poverty. Paul is giving us perspective here. Eternal perspective. Where the things that money can buy ultimately have no value. And if we learn this perspective and really live life in light of this perspective, well then our attitudes should be like that of Paul's in verse 8. If we have food and clothing with this With these, we'll be content. You see? Luxuries are not essential. We don't need them. Necessities are, though. Food and clothing. What we eat and what we wear, these are things that we can be content in and we can be thankful for. Have you ever read Jesus' Sermon on the Mount where he brings this up? Listen to Jesus here. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. There's the eternal perspective. Is your heart there? Jesus goes on. Look. Do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They, they neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after these things, and your heavenly fathers know, knows that you need them. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. There's where contentment lies, my friends, in knowing and delighting in the fact that your heavenly Father knows all that you need. Godly contentment begins with God, enjoying God, trusting God, knowing and loving and walking with God. Or as Jesus says, seeking first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and knowing everything else will be added to you as God sees fit. When Paul said in Philippians 4 that in any and every circumstance I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, he then adds this very well-known line that many of us, I myself included, are used to taking out of context. He says, indeed, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. You see, Paul's contentment came from his right doctrine of God and from his right resting in Christ who strengthens him. I hope you see this. The false teachers that Paul has been bombasting here, who had a false doctrine of God and who trusted and rested in themselves selfishly, were discontent and brought ruin to churches through their love of money. Paul, who had a right doctrine of God, 
and who trusted and rested in Christ alone. Learned to be content and strengthened churches, planted churches through his love for Christ and through his love for others. And no matter what the circumstances were, whether he was brought low or abounding, whether he was facing plenty or hunger, whether he was being stoned, whipped, or shipwrecked, he knew that in Christ he was well cared for and therefore could continue his ministry with godly contentment. Friends, I pray that we can learn the secret of godly contentment. Whether you're wealthy or barely getting by, may Christ be the object of your love, not money. The temptation is there before all people, and sometimes, in fact, it is the poorest of people who crave and want money the most. Now, may we all learn to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, learning to pray, I think, as Jesus taught us well to pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, food and clothing enough for today. Not so much that we will begin to love comfort, not so much, Lord, that that we'll find satisfaction in plenty, but also not so little, Lord, that we're tempted to steal and covet. Lord, just enough for today so that we might learn godly contentment. Father, forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.